God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the third and final installment of the Lenten series on reflections on the deadly sins. Um, I've had a lot of fun with them. I don't know if you have, but <laughs> let me rephrase that. <laughs> so I've, I've, done, there, I've, I've, I've submitted to you that there are nine deadly sins as opposed to seven. They are the seven of, of Gregory the Great plus two more. Um, they can be grouped into uh, three groups of three. We have done the sins of the heart and the sins of the mind. We are now moving to the sins of the body. And as someone remarked last night, oh, you saved the best for last. So the three sins of the body that I'm going to be looking at are lust and sloth and wrath. And uh, just to recap, it is my view that um, that these sins are in the obvious or surface level a violation of the second commandment, the commandment to love our neighbors ourselves. They tend to increase the pain and suffering both of ourselves and our fellow human beings. But more fundamentally, they are a violation of the first commandment to love God. They are an impediment in our relationship with transcendence and with the holy. So, um, in fact, there's an idolatry at the root of each sin where we have taken something that is not God and put it at the center of our value system and our orientation in life. So identifying, identifying the idolatry at the root is uh, one of the um, uh, objectives of my reflections. So, on we go. Lust. The church does not have a great track record in dealing with sexual sins. The main problem, in my view, is that we inherited this, um, this, this attitude from the Stoic philosophers that said that the body is essentially evil and the mind is pure. And so true spiritual enlightenment involves a denial of all bodily appetites and urges. And so in, you know, in Christian history, you have celibacy as the, the gold standard of the right relationship to sexuality. And I think that was a wrong turn right from the beginning. Um, I, in, in more modern times, I don't think it's a coincidence that the hardcore Protestant fundamentalists and the hardcore Roman Catholics all have problems with sexual misbehavior of their clergy. Um, and precisely because of the strong anti-sexual uh, ethos in which they live um, uh, theoretically. And so if all sexual urges and desires are lustful and sinful, what's the distinction between a healthy sexuality and just simply being human and a disordered sexuality? So my first submission is that lust is not the same thing as erotic desire. It's not the same thing. To have eros to, be, to have desires is human and inescapable and, in fact, is a good thing in life. Um, you'll permit a little anecdote. A bunch of clergy were sitting around talking about proper boundaries and counseling and so forth, and uh, the subject of transference and countertransference came up, and a priest asked our presenter, who was a counselor, um, the, the priest said, well, what happens if you feel attracted to the person that you're counseling? And the presenter just said, I just enjoy it. And it was wonderful. It cut right through all the anxiety, the heart of it, and said, yeah, that happens. It's nice. You don't do anything about it, 
but it's okay to feel it. It's okay for that to be part of your own experience in that moment. So to distinguish between eros, which is good, and lust, which is bad, is the first point that I want to make. In fact, many mystics have pointed to an erotic dimension to spirituality. They say that God is like a lover and a seducer who, who entices us into relationship, and so there's, a, there's a, an eros dimension to spirituality. And, of course, the fact that marriage has been a sacrament for some time suggests that there is a way for sexuality to be part of a healthy and holy uh, set of relationships. So the, the disorder that leads to the sin of lust um, has to do more with power than with pleasure. And I'll say that again. It has to do more with power than with pleasure. If you look at the, the, the crime of lust, which is rape, the, if you don't understand that it's fundamentally an act of violence, then you don't understand rape. It's not an act of sexuality. It's an act of violence. It's an act of power. So that is the, is the icon of the sin of lust. So uh, also, the, when you talk about um, um, sexual addiction, um, and uh, what's, the, what's the word that I can use in polite company? Um, sexual depravity in general. Um, the, uh, the appeal of sexual depravity is transgression. That's, that's what's fun about it. The fact that you're breaking the rules, that nobody can tell you what to do, that you're doing something that's forbidden and naughty. And that, of course, is, again, fundamentally about power, not about sexuality. It's about, you can't tell me what to do. Society can't tell me what to do. I'm in charge and don't get in my way. So the idol is, in fact, power. That what has taken the place of mystery and God at the heart of the human being is, I am the boss of me, and I'm probably the boss of you, too, if you're either in my way or if you have something that I want. So it's, it's a disordered relationship with power, which is fundamentally the, uh, what leads to the deadly sin of lust. Another point I keep coming back to is what the internet has done for all of these sins. And if you don't know what the internet has done for lust, I don't know where you have been for the last 30 years. The best estimate of uh, the amount of internet bandwidth that is, donated, uh, that is devoted to pornography is 30%. 30% of the bandwidth traveling around the world is pornographic. Um, I'm old enough that I remember when JPEGs were invented. The reason was to squeeze a dirty picture through a 2400 baud modem. That's exactly why JPEGs were invented and MPEGs after them and so on. Lust has been at the heart of the development of the internet. Um, for millennials and younger, uh, uh, porn has been available and ubiquitous since their childhood, which has irrevocably changed sex and dating in ways that we barely understand. We don't know what the results of that are. We know it's different. Um, and I also, and this is just a hunch, but it's a strong enough hunch that I will share it with you, that the ubiquity of internet porn is connected to the modern incel phenomenon which is rooted in a sense of male entitlement to sex and power over women. And when I say incel, I don't know if you remember that awful uh, car attack on pedestrians not that long ago where the, the, the perpetrator was a self-declared incel. It stands for involuntary celibate. I'm celibate, but I don't want to be, but I can't get a date, so I hate women. Um, and, and that 
that toxic cocktail which has now become murderous and is now connected to other kinds of toxicity in society cannot be separated in my mind from internet porn and the ubiquity of lust that's been monetized throughout the use of the internet. So it's a problem. Uh, it's a disorder. It does damage, and it does damage to the individual as well to, as to those around them. The corresponding virtue, the opposite of lust, is continence. It's not abstinence. It's not chastity. It is continence. It is, it is having a right relationship with your appetites and desires. There is, so, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. It, it, there, it, it is, um, there, there's a place where, um, where satisfying your desires is not worth harming another person. And so you are continent. You have control. You have a, a right relationship with your appetites and your desires. The, um, the other two points that I have on all of the sins is that there, in order to get from the sin to the virtue, there's an idea that is helpful out of our spiritual tradition, and there's also a practice that is helpful from our spiritual tradition. So the holy idea in this case is, um, is the antidote to this addiction to power, which is the, the, the constant teaching throughout the Jewish and Christian traditions that, um, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. It's, it's not up to us to have the power because ultimate power belongs to God. And in fact, there's a disciplined helplessness for the Christian practitioner that says, at some level, I am just me. And I am weak and I am vulnerable and I need others and I need community and I have hurts. And it is the wrong thing to impose my will on others. I don't treat others as things and objects, either that are in my way and threats to me or that have things that I want that I have to force to give me those things. They are human beings. They are equally valuable to me. And ultimately, the things that I need most deeply as a human being, love, affection, valuing, and so forth, can only be freely given. They cannot be taken. So that, that sense of weakness, the acceptance of weakness, is the road to true strength, which involves the abandonment of the idol of power. And the practice, of course, is the practice of compassion. Compassion, come with passion, suffer. It means suffering with someone. You feel what they feel, right? When you see someone suffering, they suffering, that you suffer with them. That is the practice. The practice of compassion is what changes your relationships from the I-it relationship to the I-thou relationship. So much for lust. Next one, sloth. A personal favorite of mine. Um, it is laziness, um, which is not the same as rest and recreation. Different. It's a disordered relationship to not doing anything. Um, it's it's one of the most insidious, if not the most insidious, of the deadly sins because it doesn't look all that bad. You know, I can make jokes about it. Everyone's going to chuckle. Oh yeah, I binged watched the entire thing on Netflix the other day. Ha ha ha. Um, and, and, and it doesn't look bad because you're not doing anything bad. What you're not doing is anything at all. And you're not doing anything that matters. So sloth is the sin of omission rather than the sin of commission. And it looks nice. You're not hurting anybody. Um, it takes the form of being easygoing, going along to get along. And it's based on avoidance. Um, it's avoiding the things that you really should be doing, but instead you just gardened or watched TV or whatever it was that you did. Um, it's, it's about um, 
it, it actually doesn't even look lazy all the time. It can look very, very busy because the slothful person sometimes just does what everybody else wants them to do because it's easier than standing up to other people and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And so in keeping everybody else happy in their life, they run around from obligation to obligation and they never have time for themselves and they're resentful and so forth. But fundamentally underneath it is a laziness uh, that, that it's just so much work to confront these people and say no. And then they're going to be upset and it'll be a big issue and it's just, oh, I haven't got time for that. I'm just going to get it done and then they'll leave me alone. Which, of course, doesn't happen. The idol underneath sloth is tranquility or peace. That, that what, what the, if, if, you're, if you're engaged in slothful habits, what you want is to be peaceful. You don't want to be disturbed. You, want to, you don't want to be unsettled. So you want to get back to being settled as quickly as possible. Um, and um, and the, the difficulty, of course, is that being peaceful is not the same as being open to the mystery of God. The mystery of God is actually terrifying and deeply unsettling. Um, and so to be settled is, in fact, to, to cover your experience with a layer of cotton batten, uh, where it just gets all fogged out. And you just go through routines and, um, and, and, and refuse to engage. And you become disconnected not only from God, but also from yourself. Um, the internet, if the internet is largely about pornography, it's even more about slothfulness. Um, social media, YouTube, Netflix, scrolling through news, Instagram, etc., etc., etc. You can spend all your time avoiding everything that matters by, by being online. Um, headline, 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 headline. Oh, that's interesting. Click. Paragraph, paragraph, ah, oh, this is a really long article. <laughs> headline, 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 etc., etc. And it's three hours later, and you're still scrolling, looking for whatever it is that you're looking for. And uh, don't get me started on Minecraft and whatever those other horrible things are that can just devour entire weekends. Um, it's designed to waste time um, in, in many ways. And furthermore, now, everything is a click away. You don't have to get off your couch. You can order groceries. You can have things delivered to your door. You can, you know, whatever you want. You just sit on your couch and go, yep, that's coming. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to entertain myself. I'm going to watch a movie. And then I'm going to read a book. And on we go. Sloth. And so you have these images from, you know, uh, Disney's WALL-E, for example, with the chair, the kids in the chairs, where they're just, they don't even get out of their chair anymore. They just have a screen and they have a little joystick that moves them around. Uh, I think Idiocracy had a play on the same kind phenomenon and that this is the, the, the society of sloth that we are building. The virtue, the opposite of sloth is diligence. Diligence, sticking to something, sticking with it, staying on task, staying on target, following the, the, the values and principles that actually matter. Um, the holy idea um, is, a, is a bit odd and I have to be careful about this one, but go with me. Holy war is the holy idea. Um, we have all that horrible stuff in the Old Testament with war and, and, and violence and all the rest of it, and that's usually a terrible thing. But for sloth types, we need that because some things are worth fighting for. 
And our avoidance of conflict is usually what is getting us deeper and deeper into that habit of sloth. So the fact that you have to confront people who are, are not your friends in the, uh, in the pursuit of values that are worth pursuing is the holy idea that, that gets us off of the couch and into true engagement with our society to make it a better place. And the practice, of course, is the rule of life. Um, I've talked about rule of life before. Everyone needs one. Um, but again, it goes to the diligence that the, the best antidote to sloth is sticking to that, to understanding what your rule of life is, what the, the things you do as a rule that keep you being the person you want to be and sticking to that. Finally, wrath. And again, I want to distinguish it. It's not anger. Anger is healthy. Anger is natural. We all get angry. Sometimes we should get angry. Nothing wrong with anger. Where anger gets disordered, it becomes wrathfulness. And the key element in switching from anger to wrath is self-righteousness. When I am so frickin' right, and you are so wrong, you must be destroyed. And there is no end to the amount of suffering that I think is justified because I am so right about this. You did wrong to me. You deserve everything that's coming to you. That is wrath. It is a, it is a, a releasing of the controls on the limits of aggression. And you can only justify that to yourself when you feel like you're 100% in the right. This is where holy war goes very, very wrong. So um, if you are consumed by wrath, and wrath is anger, but it's burning at a volcanic level, um, it's not enough to rebuke or correct the wrongdoer when you are acting out of wrath. Rather, they have to be destroyed. And, and it's, it, what's actually happened is that the desire for vengeance becomes the engine that drives the train. The righteousness becomes the rationalization that allows the vengeance, which is the real energy, somebody needs to suffer, and that suffering is what I really want. That's when wrath becomes the sin. It is the mindset of the crusader. The idol is righteousness. And I, I, one scholar of my acquaintance, that was a swear word for him. He would be driving, and someone would cut him off, and he'd say, oh, you're so righteous. And, you know, uh, it was an odd choice of swear word. And I said, but you're a scholar. You know about, you know, the Jewish and Arabic, Sadiq. He said, oh, yeah, that's a different word. That's, that's what Joseph was when he didn't want to put Mary away when she got pregnant. He's a righteous man in that sense, but that's not the English word. English word is full of yourself. That's righteous. And, and when you're concerned with your own righteousness to the exclusion of, the, uh, of awareness of the uh, impact of your behavior on others, that's when wrath has taken over. So you've made an idol of righteousness, and you're actually more concerned about yourself being righteous than you are about having a relationship with God and with your neighbor. The internet has created outrage mobs. Um, Viral video of something outrageous, millions of people then go, yeah, let's get them. And they will not have anything but that they be fired or that the business close down and that there be a boycott and so on and so forth. And the goal is to crush and destroy the wrongdoer. There's no 
um, an, out, uh, an outrage mob on the internet has no concept that we are all sinners, we all make mistakes from time to time, and that there, there could be a nuanced approach to some of these problems. Um, we, we have call-out culture, which again proliferates online. To be racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic means that all manner of punishment is now justified when these labels get attached to you. Um, and then in extreme cases, you have the phenomena of doxing and swatting. If you don't know what those are, doxing is when you publish the personal information of the supposed wrongdoer. Here's where they live, here's where they work, here's what their name is, here's their phone number. And then you let the crazies take care of it. And then related to that is, uh, is, the, is the murderous tactic of swatting, which is once you have the doxed information, you know where they live, you call in a fake um, uh, amber alert to say there's a terrorist group, they're heavily armed, they're planning something, and they're at this address. And the SWAT team shows up, guns blazing, uh, on someone who is innocent of that offense. And of course, they deserve it because they are so wrong. Wrath. Now, the corresponding virtue is patience. It's not equanimity. It's actually patience, which, which highlights the fact that wrath comes from impatience. We're going to make it right, and it's going to be right now, and we can't wait for God to make it right. So the virtue becomes patience, where you say, Okay, can't fix everything today. We're just going to allow the world to be the way it is and do our bit to make it better. The holy idea, again, is paradoxical. For me, the holy idea best for the wrathful uh, practice or, or to avoid wrathfulness is the idea of original sin. And I know that doctrine has gotten a bad rep um, where, you know, everybody's so miserable and we're all sinners and you can't do anything about it, but I find that liberating. I... I've tried to be a good person my whole life and I'm still failing. Um, and, and I know you are too. Now what that does when you're a sinner and I'm a sinner is that it fundamentally changes our relationship to each other. It's not that we're all righteous and when you suddenly show signs of sin, you need to be shamed and shunned out of the community. If we're all sinners, then yep, you're in the same boat as I am, and what we need to do is correct the sin, but do it in a way that is compassionate and, and finds a way together. It's not judgmental. It's about an acceptance that we're all, we all fall short of what we were meant to be. And the practice to avoid the sin of wrath is the Sabbath. Take a break. Don't, the, the world can stay unfixed for a minute. Be gentle with yourself. Ask yourself how you're feeling. Are you mad about something? What is it that you're mad about? Um, uh, because, of course, the anger is a bad thing. We shouldn't feel angry, so we stop ourselves from feeling angry so that when we feel righteous about something, all this other anger now is available to come in and blast the subject of our anger. But if we take a Sabbath and we ask how we're feeling, we may find that we're actually angry about something else, like the fact that I've been trying a little too hard and not getting very far in this other part of my life. So... That concludes the reflection on the deadly sins. Uh, you have them. I have them. We all have them. One is probably our favorite. Um, and the bottom line is, 
Even in all of that, God loves us anyway. We are beloved, we are lovable, and we can love each other despite the fact that we manifest these sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.